to open your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 13 and going through to the end of 12. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and asked, and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection... Whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the teachers of of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher. The man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Then Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, and he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, 
Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in, the, in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Vivian. It's great to be here with you, friends. It's uh, an exciting passage, isn't it? Uh, what you say to the person next to you, what's he going to do with this? <laughs> um, one of the great things about being a guest preacher at churches that I've come to realise is that um, you learn to appreciate more your own minister when you have a guest preacher. So hopefully after this morning, you'll appreciate Dave and his ministry to you a lot more. Friends, I'd love to pray with you. It's great to be here with you. Let's, uh, let's talk to our God together. Our gracious God, we want to give you thanks that we can meet here together this morning as your people. And we thank you for your word to us, the scriptures that call us not only into eternity, but to live for you right now. So we pray, our Lord, that your words would uh, sit heavily upon our hearts this morning, that we might listen and wrestle and struggle with what it is that you're calling us to and what it means to live for you and to know you as our Lord and our King. Uh, we pray now, please, that you'd be with me, that you'd help me to speak in a way that's faithful and clear and interesting, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, honestly, you could flip a coin on this one and watch how it all plays out, and if I was a betting man, and I'm not, I know where I'd be putting my money. Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem. He's up against the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Sadducees and the scribes. He's already rattled their piggy banks, upended the tables of the money changers. How hard it is to enter for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, he says. Jesus has come to change things up. He's come to bring change, to bring in the new age. But for all this talk about change, nothing has really changed for the religious leaders of Israel. They really couldn't give a flip. And all the big names are here in Mark chapter 12, if you notice them, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Caesar. There's questions here about coins and marriage and resurrection. Jesus asks about sonship and lordship. There are commandments, condemnations, commendations. A poor widow now possesses everything. As Jesus comes bringing change, he's rebalancing the scales of the things that you and I value. And we're a culture that's bought into the idea that if we stay busy enough, the truth of our lives won't catch up with us. And so the conversation at morning tea goes something like this. How are you doing? I'm totally busy. And how about you? Oh yeah, I've been flat out. 
We nod our heads with one another, having performed the ritual of mutual affirmation, perpetuating the false belief that our validation is found in, the, in our work and so is our identity. The busier you are, the more you're needed by others, therefore you must be valuable. It is the existential claim of the 21st century. I am stressed, therefore I am. Too reactive for the urgent, too tired for the important, too distracted for what matters most. I know this because I've done it. I've had conversations with people at my church like it. We didn't go to growth group this week or commit to meeting with others at church because things have been so hectic and now we're too exhausted. We don't read our Bibles or practice the disciplines of healthy discipleship because we don't know how to do them and because we're too busy and too tired. Always running late in the mornings, always worn out in the evenings, always still with something else to do. And Sunday rolls around too quickly, doesn't it? Let's be honest, who felt like staying home today, sleeping in, pyjamas, Netflix, pancakes, anyone? Is it just me? <laughs> the high-tech enabled, hyper-paced nature of our work has impacted our lives to such a degree that people feel overwhelmed like we've never done before. We don't know how to switch off and we don't want to. All those beeps and buzzes and banners invade our mental space and the cost is our ability to focus on what really matters. We've socialised into believing that everything needs to be done now. If only I had more time, we say to ourselves, but there is no more time. All we get is 24 hours. The five choices to Path of the Extraordinary Productivity, a book, records a Frank and Covey survey from all over the world, a six-year study with over, uh, th over 350,000 respondents. They found that people spend 60% of their time doing important things, doing the necessary things that matter most to them, which means we spend 40% of our time, next slide please, doing things that don't matter or aren't important. 40%, that's almost half of your time, attention and energy, is spent doing unimportant things or irrelevant things. We react to the urgent but we fail to act on the important. But Jesus comes turning the tables. He comes to rebalance the scales of what we value. He redirects our questions. He turns things on their head. And it all starts there with a toss of a coin. Have you got your Bible there? Mark chapter 12, verse 14. Here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them... Or should we not pay or don't pay, give or don't give, heads or tails, what do you say, Jesus? It's a question about law and finances, about secular government and applied theology. And it's a good question too, especially for those of us in churches. The world is pretty dirty about our relationship with the tax office. So what does Jesus say about churches paying taxes? Well, you're going to have to ask him that one yourself because... That's not really the question that's being asked here. Jesus isn't interested in tax law or economic reform. He's not concerned about how you fared on budget night. He just wants us to give credit where it's due. Give back things to their rightful owner. 
The poser of the questions, the Pharisees and the Herodians, have all the inquisitive sensitivity of a current affair doing another story on finances in Christian institutions. But in posing this question, they reveal themselves as being posers. Here, let me show you. You see, it's these very same guys who were earlier hatching a plan to kill Jesus in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. You can see the words there on the screen. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Destroy him is just the ESV's nice way of saying murder. But now Mark says that they're trying to trap him. Jesus even says, why do you put me to the test? Because either way, a firm answer to their question means that they can charge him with treason or blasphemy. So they're asking, is Jesus loyal to Rome or to Israel? Will he anger the crowds or will he upset the authorities? It's the classic scenario at the toss of the coin, isn't it? Heads I win, tails you lose. And so they are reassuring him, they're trying to reassure him that they think he's true, which in fact is a lie because they don't think he's true. They tell him he's not, persu he's not persuaded by public opinion, but these guys care way too much about what other people think of them. It's not so much that Jesus isn't swayed by appearances, it's more that Jesus doesn't take things on face value. Literally, he doesn't look upon the faces of men. Although that's exactly what he's about to do now, isn't it? He's going to answer their questions on face value. And so he asks them for a coin. You can see that there in verse 15. Verse 15. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. A denarius was a Roman coin and it would have looked something like this. A coin bearing the image of the emperor who at that time was Caesar Tiberius. A denarius was the equivalent of a day's wages and the required amount to pay tax to the Romans. And you thought 37 cents on the dollar was steep. The inscription on the coin says this, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. It is a coin that says Tiberius is the son of God. Look there, verse 16. Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Well, of course they marveled at him. Jesus has just separated church from state. But he couldn't give a flip about the money. I don't know why the word render is rendered as rendered in the ESV. It just means to give or to give back. And so at one level here, there's really nothing all that marvellous about what Jesus has just said. Actually, it's really quite simple. Give back what belongs to Caesar. Give back what belongs to God. Of course, the coin in question belongs to Caesar. I mean, it's his inscription, right? It's his image there on the coin. But here's where you and I get to marvel too. Because the image on the coin belongs to Caesar. Give back to Caesar the things of Caesar's. But tell me now, friends, whose image and likeness are you imprinted with? Give back to God the things that are God's. If you thought the Pharisees were asking tricky questions, listen to what the Sadducees ask now in verse 19. Teacher Moses wrote of us, wrote for us, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, 
leaves no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and then he died and left no offspring. And the second took her and died and left no offspring, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Now, if you think this is a rather long and complex story, well, that's because it is. I mean, the question has a longer run-up to it than an Olympic pole vaulter, doesn't it? Finally, we get to the question there in verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? Honestly, it sounds more like the final episode of Farmer Wants a Wife or possibly a Mormon wedding. More than an actual theological legality, Moses might have been catering here for Levite marriage. Here's the law that they're referring to, Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead, shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Of course, in such a situation, the upside is she doesn't have to change her surname again, but no doubt she'll forget the date of a wedding anniversary. The scenario painted by the scribes and the Pharisees, this woman's been down the aisle more times than a bowling ball and had more stays, honeymoon stays than Fiji. Still, seven brothers, one bride, no kids, all of them now dead. Whose wife will she be? But here's the amazing thing, friends. Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, which kind of makes last Sunday a little bit awkward for them, doesn't it? And they're just asking complicated questions. They're not trying to work out who caught the final bouquet. They're trying to catch out Jesus in his teaching. And so Jesus tells them they're wrong. In fact, they're quite wrong because they don't know the scriptures and they don't know the power of God. Listen to Jesus' answer now, verse 24. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you, neither, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, that God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now this may or may not be good news for you this morning, friends, depending on the status of your marriage or your marital status, but Jesus says there is no marriage in heaven. Being raised from the dead is the power of God. The scriptures tell us that the living God is the God of the living. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the living. That's how God revealed himself to Moses. Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob aren't dead. It's no surprise that another expert in the law now lines up to ask Jesus another question. What is surprising is why he asks him. Look there at verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that they answered, him, answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? That's a good question. Unlike the Pharisees and the Herodians and unlike the Sadducees, there's nothing sinister going on about this question. 
There's no hidden agenda here, no secret motives, no games being played. The grammarians saw that Jesus answered them well, and so he wanted to know the answer himself. Here's the answer Jesus gives. See it there, verse 29. The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus goes straight to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, which says exactly the same thing as it says here in Mark, well, almost. There is one God, the God of Israel is one God. He's not many gods. He's not compartmentalised or divided into different parts. He doesn't specialise like the gods of Egypt do, who have gods for everything. No, the God of Israel is the God of everything. That's what Moses declared to Israel in the wilderness. The one God, the Lord your God, love him with everything that you've got. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. They aren't just various parts of your body, you know. They're not optional extras here. They are the sum total of our entire being. God is one and so are we. So love God with everything that you've got. Give back to God the things that are God's. Listen, that's what Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 says, and that's what Jesus is saying here. Those who truly love God with everything will also love those who are created in his image. You ready for this? So love your neighbour as yourself. That's the second and greatest command. The, scripture, the scribes who invested his entire life in the scriptures tells Jesus that his answer is right and true. There is only one God and there is no other. But listen to what Jesus says to him next, verse 33. And to love him with all the and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbour as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. More than anything on offer in the temple, greater than any other offering or sacrifice that we can make. God wants his people to love him with everything that we have. Give back to God the things that are God's. Is it any wonder that no one asked any more questions? And so Jesus now starts asking a few questions of his own. Questions about sonship and lordship. He condemns the scribes for being pretentious, long robes, long walks, long prayers. But I want us to look closely again at the sacrifices now being offered in the temple. All eyes now squarely fixed on the offering box. Look there, verse 41. Verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. I'm sure this is a familiar story to all of us, isn't it? No doubt it's one that you've heard before. These four verses here in Mark's Gospel have been misused to increase church budgets and to guilt people into giving more for years. The poor widow who gave everything while the rich only gave a portion of their possessions. But friends, 
If Jesus is primarily concerned with financial, if all he really wanted from us was our money, don't you think he would have said so about the denarius? But here's this poor widow, the kind of person religious people take advantage of. In first century Roman culture, she was a liability. She's completely dependent for everything that she has. She is a total drain on the Roman welfare system. She has nothing. She barely manages to scrape two coins together. Here's what Jesus says about her in verse 43. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Without reservation, without hesitation, without financial consultation, she gives everything she has to God. She gives God all the credit. You see, here in the temple courts, the place of prescribed sacrifices and offerings, she offers so much more than the burnt offerings and the sacrifices on offer. She gives all that she has to God because she gives God everything she has. That's what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, to give back to God the things that are God's. All that she has, she gives to God. And she gives everything to that which is most important to her. But the question becomes now, what about you? Are you giving back to God the things that belong to him? This isn't so much simply being about money. It's not about how much you give to church. It's not about how much you give to missions. There are not many churches on the Gold Coast saying that. Can I just say that? Give more, give less. Honestly, I don't care. And I don't think Jesus really cares either. God's not interested in your money. Why would God be interested in your money when everything belongs to him anyway? Jesus is only really interested in one thing, getting back what rightfully belongs to him. Jesus is only interested in one thing, and that one thing, friend, is you. All of you. All that you are. All that you have. Without hesitation. Without reservation. Give back to God what belongs to God. Give credit where it's due. Give back to God the things that are God's. Love the Lord your heart, Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Love him with everything you've got. Don't keep something away for a rainy day. Offer the whole offering as a sacrifice. Don't be partial or fragmented in giving yourself to God. Don't keep little bits of me for me. Everything belongs to him. Don't you see... This is really an invitation for you to be his. To empty ourselves of the things of this world so that we might be filled with the things of God. God spared no expense in your redemption. He withheld nothing from your adoption. When he gave up his life of his son, the Lord Jesus, in death on the cross, God gave us everything. God has not withheld anything from you. He promises not to withhold anything from you either. See it for yourself, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So what are you still withholding? It's easy for us to be reactive to the urgent, which leaves us too tired to the things that are most important and too distracted to what matters most. And culturally, we've become conditioned to busyness. I'll just say again that busyness isn't next to godliness. Loving the Lord your God, loving your neighbour as yourself without reservation, without distraction, that is what it means to be godly. So this morning, friends, just for a moment, I want us to think about what's most important and to give back to God the things that are God's. And just so you've got some time to think about it, I've got a couple of questions for you. What's one thing that you need to stop doing so that you might love God and your neighbour? And what's one thing that you need to start doing so that you might love God and your neighbour? And what needs to happen for you now so that you can give everything you have to pursue God? I'm going to give you a minute to think about it and then I'll pray. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it tells us not just to be hearers, but to be doers. So we pray that you would help us to reflect on what it is that we need to stop doing so that we might love you more and to love our neighbours ourselves. And we pray that you'd help us to reflect on what we need to start doing so that we might love you more and love our neighbours ourselves. Help us, we pray this morning, Lord Jesus, to no longer be fragmented or discombobulated, but to bring our whole self to you, to give ourselves to you without reservation, without hesitation, not just in pursuit of eternal life, but in, in pursuit of you right now in this life, that we might know you, be changed by you, and to live for you, that we might give to you all that is yours. Would you forgive us for being miserly and stingy and withholding ourselves, things in our life that we still want to hold on to? Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your arms were spread open wide and that you withheld nothing from us. Help us now as your people to reflect your likeness and your image and to give ourselves completely to you, to love you with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength 
and to love one another this same way, the same way that you've loved us. For we ask all of these things in your son's precious name. Amen.